Well, somewhere out there in God's creation, the sun is shining, the grass is green, palm trees are blowing in the breeze. That ain't here, my friends. I, you know, we have this big sort of void here in the, in the, in the, in the front of the church. I feel like I'm preaching uh, to the masses in the back here. Thank you for everyone who braved the weather, who, who got out here. We know that for many, uh, traveling these conditions isn't safe, but for many of us, uh, we can handle it. So great that some folks have shown up here. Uh, just a quick poll so I know my audience right now. Who here is actually quite stoked about the winter weather? Who here loves the snow? No. All right. Who here is, this is misery. You're just in misery right now. This is, all right, the snow people have it. You know, sorry, you got some fist pumps for, I mean, I got to say, whenever I see this on a Sunday, my heart kind of sings because I know, like, you know, worship's going to just take a blow there. But the other part of me is like, oh, I think I'm going to be sick tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm definitely, <coughs> <coughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely feeling something coming on. I will be experiencing low-altitude sickness and will need to get high before, um, you know, b- bad things happen to me. So, did you catch that low-altitude? Yeah, I got... Okay, friends, we are jumping back into the Jonah series because that is why we are here. Um, I, I heard this recently in another message uh, by uh, Andy Stanley. He made reference to this, and I was immediately taken back to my intro to sociology class. Uh, it is the fundamental attribute error. Does anybody remember the fundamental attribute error? All right, good, all right, yeah. So the fundamental attribute error is whenever people have a proclivity to attribute others' behaviors or actions to their character, to, to who they are. It works out something like this. He or she is late because he or she is lazy, uh, disorganized, and inconsiderate. That's why they're late. I, however, I was late because... I was caring for my kids and getting them ready for school because I was busy uh, reading a book and so, so, so lost in my study because I'm focused and attentive. Uh, I, I, I have such a full schedule that I just, I'm fitting in the most of my day. So the fundamental attribute error is that we have this propensity then to say, this is who a person is if they are late. And we, we chalk that up to fundamentally who they are as a person and generally in negative terms. But we will make a story in our minds that will say our behaviors, our actions, flow from conditions in our lives, and we actually have an amazing way to cast that in an incredible light, right? You know, when somebody drives poorly, oh, they're a, I mean, we we think horrible things about others because of a mistake when they're driving. But when we make a mistake when we're driving, you know, oh, we're, we are running late, or, you know, we're distracted, or I just didn't, I didn't see that, you know, we, we have an incredible ability to always think the worst of others, but give ourselves incredible grace, <laughs> incredible patience, incredible understanding. You know, we don't look in the mirror and just say, you know, yeah, boy, I'm just lazy, irresponsible, and inconsiderate of the people around me. No, I mean, we just don't self-talk that way. Well, it would appear from our introduction to Jonah, that Jonah is suffering from the fundamental attribute error. Are the Assyrians, are the people of Nineveh evil? Are they fundamentally evil? Well, we know that they are clearly committing atrocities 
against other people, against other nations. Does this make them irredeemably bad, evil, outside of God's scope of grace and forgiveness? Well, absolutely not. Jonah says, yes, they are fundamentally and irredeemably evil, and I will not go to them. Whereas our God seems to be this God who recognizes their evil. And by the way, we should thank God for the recognition of evil, for the calling out of evil, the calling out of wickedness, the calling out of atrocities, the calling out of things that are unjust and not good and not right and oppressive and all of those things. But does that make an entire group of people in the case of our story, the city of Nineveh with over 120,000, are they irredeemably bad outside of the scope of God's plan for salvation? Well, fundamentally not. God wants his message to go to them. And what we landed on uh, last week was that it, it simply comes down to this. God said, go, but Jonah said, all right. People are listening, paying attention, tracking with the story. God says, go, and when God says, go, our position, speaking to brothers and sisters, people who profess commitment to Jesus Christ, who call him Savior and say, Lord, when God says go, we say yes, and then we should say, now what are the details, right? That, that, that should actually kind of be the flow of our life. Yes, okay, now tell me what it is. We do want to have a sympathy and understanding for Jonah. I mean, he, he would be rightly scared from what we talked about last week, for his own life. He doesn't want to end up like he knows so many others have ended up when confronted with the Assyrians. He wants to go and preach, repent to them. He knows it could cost him his life. But what's going to become clear as we move through Jonah, his motivations are going to be revealed. And let me just sort of jump ahead and then we're going to kind of come back into the story so we can live more deeply into what is being revealed. We're going to know that he, he just really doesn't think they deserve a shot at God's grace. In fact, he'll go so far to say, God, I, I know you're compassionate. I know you're gracious. I know you're willing to forgive. And I just fundamentally don't think they deserve it. And again, let me point to where we're going in this. We're going to need to see a mirror held up to our lives to say, when and where have we? And I'm going to push on this. When and where have we been guilty of this sin of Jonah? fundamentally writing off an entire group of people, an entire other them, to say they don't deserve it, and I'm not willing to share it. So, whenever we realize that God said go and Jonah said no, there were consequences to that action. Let's just recap that really quick and then jump back into the story. We learned that sin always brings a storm. Sin will always bring a storm some way into our lives, into the lives of others, and we know that fundamentally sin has brought storms into our world for which we all bear the burden and pay the consequences. So all of us should be seeking opportunities to repent when we know we're in sin, to call for help and mercy when we are suffering from the sins of others and for healing in our lives. And when we just see sin in the world, uh, when friends are suffering from cancer, uh, things are going on, you know, just pray all the more, come Lord Jesus, come, you know, let's just get this done and bring the kingdom to earth on, let's roll. So that's what we learned sort of from that. So we did learn though, the grace of the story already begins to weave its way in whenever we realize, though, that God is in the storm. God has this incredible capacity that he will use the storm 
to essentially say to Jonah, uh, I, I love the Assyrians, I want them to repent, but Jonah, I'm not willing to let you just run away. I will not write you off that easily. How good that our God will not write us off when we turn away. He sends a storm. He's going to use the casting of lots. He's going to send a fish. He's going to cause the fish to spit Jonah back up. He's going to send a plant. He's going to, I mean, God is, we're going to swing back to this in our final message. We're going to dive deep into God's sovereignty throughout in the story, in the scriptures, in the world, in our lives. God is sovereign and in control. Praise be to God. But the great storyline that we want to pick up, wanted to pick up on was that this is pointing us to the ultimate plan when God would enter into the storm of our lives, the storms of this world, and bring a miracle for us, the miracle of life, salvation, hope in Him, but God enters into the storms and uses those storms for us in Jesus Christ. That really only got us for the first three verses, so we're going to pick up at verse four and go deeper into Jonah's story here. Let me read it for us. It's going to be a big chunk again, but this is just so, I won't, I won't, you know, belabor this point. Just soak in this most masterfully written story to reveal the deep truths of God's character, God's salvation, God's plan for his people. It's just amazing. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. Then they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from God. He had told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. I mean, we should just sort of read that with no. <laughs> but an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, at the risk of sanitizing an incredibly well-crafted story, 
uh, I'm going to turn this into a bit more of a didactic teaching uh, because sometimes that's what we do to understand what a story is revealing. So please don't miss soaking in, reading, pondering the story on your own throughout the week. But I want to just take a quick little journey and have us reflect on Jonah's sleep, the sailor's salvation, and finally, our substitute. Three things clearly pointed out here for us to reflect upon. Jonah's sleep, the sailor's salvation. I just love saying that. If you don't know, my name is George Sailor, so it always feels very close to home when I talk about these sailors. And then finally, our substitute to which this story is pointing us. So, Jonah's sleep. We sense, sense in this story immediately as Jonah's telling his own story. And, and let's, let's just say this. One of the miracles of the scriptures and what keeps me coming back is when I take a step away, how different these stories of scripture flow when compared to the other stories of culture, of other faiths, of other belief systems. Jonah is so not painting himself as the hero. It, it's, it's almost laughable, right? I, I, I mean, his humility to paint himself poorly should just cause us to consider the merits <laughs> of this text. He wants God to be glorified in every possible way, even to the point where he just shows how far he has traveled from God. He gets up, as God calls him, but instead of going up to Nineveh, he goes down. He goes down to Joppa. And then we just see this just downward spiral. He goes down to the harbor. He goes down to a ship. He goes down into the ship. He falls down into a sleep. Uh, we're going to see that he's going to go down to the depths of the sea and in the belly of the He is going down further and further and further and further away. And many of us now, as we would reflect on our lives, I think we might say we have been in that same situation, maybe not in the details, but in the substance of the matter that it is a series of sometimes seemingly insignificant choices that can lead us into what becomes a downward spiral that takes us further and further from God. Little choices, little steps that keep leading us further and further from God. Well, I don't need to give to God. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need my offering. I don't need to be in worship. Where can I go from the depths of God from God's presence. If I go up to the uh, heavens, you are there. If I sink down to the depths, you are there. Where do I need to go to worship? Do I really need to be in a group with other Christians sharing in fellowship? Shouldn't I be out in mission to the world sharing the love of God? I use those examples quite specifically because we have an amazing capacity to justify our decisions by putting them in a certain light. Of course God doesn't need our money, <laughs> but God wants us to join with him in mission and not let money become our God and have the joy of becoming generous people as he is a generous God. And so he invites us to make the decision to move forward in faith and give to him. Of course God is everywhere. Praise God that we cannot flee from his presence but something special happens when we gather as the people of God to worship Him. It's a witness to the world and its unity for us as the body of Christ. And special things unfold when we're in His house as we just sang about. Well, well of course we should be out in mission. And we should be engaging the lost and seeking out people. But, but we need 
come together as the body of Christ. We can make a series of decisions and tell a story to ourselves about those decisions, but the net result is that many of us at different times or seasons in our lives have found ourselves quite far from God. Maybe not all the way into the ocean, into the belly of a whale, but still far from His presence, far from His will, far from the community of faith, far from God. So Jonah finds himself in this position, and this downward spiral has led to sleep, but it's more than a sleep. I think what we're seeing here is, of course, more of a, a numbness, a spiritual numbness. I'm about to date myself, as I often do, but I was coming of age in the early 90s when alternative rock was at its apex of awesomeness. Amen, friends, on that? Just, all right, I knew I'd get some, get some, you know, props there. So, early 90s, U2 is at the top of their game. They are out in the um, Zoo TV tour, uh, which was just so extravagant, they barely broke even. That's a whole other story. In the midst of that tour, they craft an album called the Zooropa album. Many people just lambasted it as their worst album. Because I was an angsty college guy at that time, I thought it was awesome. It's an alternativeness. Even the first song that they released. Anybody remember the first song that they released from that album? Anybody? 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 No other? I saw the tour in Philadelphia, by the way, at the time. It's an awful song. I'm not surprised you don't remember it. It's awful. You, you can barely make it through listening to this song. You know you're a band who has achieved just a whole other level of success when you just intentionally release horrible songs. The song was called Numb. And it's just the most monotonous, boring, repetitive, worst song. But in that, it's brilliant. Again, I won't, I won't go too artsy here on you. But it's brilliant in that what they're saying is, are, are we not just becoming numb? We're just inundating ourselves with amusement and entertainment and chemicals and, and, and whatever it takes to numb ourselves from feeling anything. Jonah has become numb to God's grace. He's become numb to a city trapped in evil whom God wants to reach. And as we're about to see, he has even become numb to the lives of the sailors by whom he is surrounded who are about to die. And, and, and he just doesn't seem to care. May God shake all of us out of our slumber and feel deeply the call for repentance the call to turn to God, the call for grace, the call for mercy, the call for justice, the call of God. May we awake from our spiritual slumber and make haste to go where God would call us to share His good news and His grace. Jonah has fallen into this slumber. And so now we want to turn to then the experience of these sailors. The sailors begin, in a sense, to awaken Jonah. The sailors, God is going to use in a remarkable way to rouse him. And we're going to see then this act of compassion at the very end by Jonah. But the thing I want to turn our attention to in this is God's great love for all people in all places at all times, for us not to fall into the fundamental attribute error and fundamentally write off entire different people groups. Oh, that's the homeless. They're all alcoholics, drug addicts, lazy. You know, a lot are. 
a lot struggle with addiction, a lot struggle with mental illness. But a lot of them have been on the run from abusive relationships, and they've worn out their welcome with family and friends. A lot of them had an accident, and they're now living with chronic pain, and they simply can't work anymore, and there's been no net to catch them. We can't just write off people as outside of hope, of grace, of mercy, of a compassion, of our compassion. These sailors become vessels for God to waken Jonah. They act better than him at every turn. They are fighting for their lives and for the lives of the people on the ship. They are praying to their gods to the best that they know. They are jettisoning all of the cargo to lighten the load. They go down, and the captain finds Jonah. He's just, you know, flabbergasted. How can you sleep? I mean, at least get up and pray to your God. Maybe your God will do something. They decide this storm is upset. Such ferocity, it says. Something more has to be going on here. They cast lots to see if somebody is at fault, and God uses this as a mercy already. It falls on Jonah. Who are you? Where do you come from? What is your quest? What is your favorite color? What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen? Nobody? I mean, I thought it'd be be a good one. That's a great movie there. So, no, I mean, so they're they're like, what is going on here? And, and, And Jonah will then confess to them. But what he says is very telling. Let me just kind of spin on this for for just a moment. I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh, the God of the land and the sea. What this says is very telling uh, about him because he has identified himself by his nationality and by his religion. And I'm not going to let this usurp the whole message, but we get into a very dangerous place as people of faith, followers of Jesus Christ in the family of God, when we begin to define ourselves first and foremost by our nationality and by our religion, when we begin to put our place over who God says we are, when we begin to put our behaviors in response to the grace of God over simply receiving His worthiness. Jonah has fallen into this trap at putting his nationality over the other nations, even though our God, from the very beginning, was setting out to be a blessing to all peoples, all of the creation. And when he begins to put his religious practice over simply being the recipient of God's grace, let us not fall into that trap, but always, first and foremost, be followers of Jesus Christ welcomed into the family of God. So, Jonah's response is worthy of more reflection, but he makes this response, and then he's, they say, what should we do? And he says, of course, throw me overboard. Just, just throw me over, overboard. How good are these guys now at this point that they don't want to do that? They even say they don't want to sacrifice innocent blood, and Jonah is anything but innocent at this point, and yet they keep fighting. They try to row to land. They keep fighting, it, and they, in a sense, they finally acquiesce then, and they do as Jonah says, and they throw him overboard, and then what we read is remarkable. The very thing that Jonah was running from, the thing that he doesn't want to do, he inadvertently does (laughs) by God working through him, and these foreign sailors, we don't know really much about them except they are 
not of Jonah's background and not of Jonah's religious practice because he answers in opposition to who they were, yet they fear the Lord, make sacrifices offering, and then make a vow to the living God. I like to think someday in the kingdom of God, we'll get to hear more from them about this storm and the moment when they gave their lives and put their faith and trust in the living Lord, the God of the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. Well, they come to faith despite Jonah's best intentions. <laughs> he is already fulfilling the call to share the good news of the grace and the love and the mercy of God because as soon as they throw him overboard, the storm settles down. And this points to our substitute. Last week I mentioned this, and let me unpack this a little bit more before we wrap up in some more time for worship here this morning. If you have been a follower of Christ your whole lives, grew up in Sunday school, maybe going to vacation Bible school, or just listening to a preacher like me, you've probably heard reference to the many storm experiences in the life and the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospels, this story is told each and several different occasions when Jesus would be going across a lake with his disciples who were themselves men of the sea, sailors in their own right. We usually just call them fishermen, of course but quite familiar with the ways of the water. On one occasion, they were going across the sea, and a storm came up, and they were afraid for their lives because it seemed a storm of unique intensity and ferocity. And they went down, and they found Jesus asleep. But Jesus was not asleep because of a spiritual numbness. Jesus was asleep because of a peace that passes all understanding and anything that would make sense in this case. He's asleep in a storm that could cost them their lives. But he is aroused, and with a word, he calms the sea. And the disciples themselves were greatly afraid, more afraid than, than they were at the storm. For who is this that commands the wind and the waters, and they obey him? And they began to understand that they were following not just another rabbi, not just another teacher, not just any miracle worker, but the son of the living God. At the end of Jonah's chapter here, we see that he finally is willing to make the sacrifice to save the souls of the people around him. And he offers up his own body, and he tells them to throw himself, tells them to throw him overboard, and they do, and when he does, the wrath of the storm is acquiesced, is settled, and peace comes upon the waters. Jonah begrudgingly, almost, offers up his body. In God's mercy, we see that when he entered the depths, his life is even saved as he remains in the belly of a great fish for three days before he is spat up on dry land to continue his mission on to Nineveh. Our Lord Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life and went all the way to death and remained in that grave for three days. Jesus willingly became our substitute, and Scripture has been pointing us towards this substitutionary death, this substitutionary atonement, where one life would pay the price for the many. It's being alluded to all throughout Scripture 
Whenever the armies of God and the, the armies of the Philistine come to the battleground, they each offer up one man, one a giant named Goliath, a storm of a man able to crash into this army. And this little boy, David, who willingly walks onto the field. The scripture has been always pointing us to this substitute. And when in the fullness of time, when all had come right to the moment, Jesus willingly laid down his life on our behalf so that we might find life in his sacrifice, that we might find the forgiveness of sins when he took them into the grave, that he took on the death that we deserved only to rise to new life so that we can rise in his resurrection and live eternally with him. The genius, the beauty, the story of Jonah has been pointing us towards this substitution that is fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. And so I simply want to encourage you to turn towards Jesus as your substitute, as your Savior, as the one who took your sin, the one who took your death, so that you might live in his grace and mercy and resurrection now and forever. Let's invite the band to come forward. Let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll continue in some time for worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story that points us towards so many truths revealed. Lord, for those of us who are finding ourselves perhaps in a bit of a spiritual slumber or even a numbness of soul towards you, may you awaken us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Awaken us to your grace, your mercy, your love. Awaken us to the needs of the world around us, a world so trapped in evil and pain and sin and brokenness, and yet a world calling out for a Savior. Awaken us, stir us, and send us, and may we never say no, but say yes. Now to where, now to whom, and how will you send me? And may we be a people quick to rise to our feet and go as your men, as your women, as your ambassadors of the gospel. Lord, whenever we see the people around us doing your work, like these sailors, these sailors who in a sense you know, out-Christianed Jonah, out-loved Jonah, out-mercied Jonah, out-graced Jonah, may we be quick to rise to share of your goodness and your grace. And Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are the one willing to take our sin, to take our death, to sink to the depths, only to rise again in new life in the resurrection. And may we put our faith, our hope, our trust, our lives fully in the life that you offer to us. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's worship our God.